Well, I wonder what you're looking forward to this morning. So maybe just take a moment, think about this week, think about the next few weeks, think through this summer. What are you excited about? What are you looking forward to? Maybe a graduation? Maybe a summer vacation? Maybe some of you looking forward to a new vocation, right? You got a new job that's starting. Or maybe some of you are excited because that job you've had is finally coming into an end and you're going to get to enjoy retirement. Or maybe you're looking forward to a marriage or a birth. Or maybe you're looking forward to lazy days on a lake or floating down a river. Or maybe the much-anticipated Top Gun release. You know, I even, I even read that the Backstreet Boys are coming to the Amp. It's not my jam, but hey, you know, if that's what you like, what do they say down here? God bless your heart or what have you. <laughs> Friends, point being is this, we all, if we, if we think about it, we all have things that we're looking forward to, all of things that excite us, things that we long for. And friends, what we long for and what excites us, what motivates us, that actually says a whole lot about our own hearts. So friends, I wonder what your hopes reveal about your own hearts this morning and it's questions like that that are going to bring us into our text in second corinthians chapter five so let me invite you to turn there second corinthians five one to five uh, if you don't happen to have a bible with you uh, no worries we provide bibles and the seat back before you you can find second corinthians five i believe on page 966 page 966. And to bring us up to speed paul's relationship with the church in corinth has fallen on some some rocky times, right? They, the Corinthian church, expect success and they expect strength from their religious leaders. And yet Paul, what have we said? Paul looks weak and he has all these afflictions and these afflictions have cast doubts in their minds, at least, on his own apostolic authority and ministry. And yet far, Paul says, from his own afflictions undermining his ministry, Paul says they actually underscore the authenticity of his ministry, Because as he says earlier in chapter 4, it's actually in our own weakness that God's power is most on display. And it's in affliction, Paul says, there in 4.17. It's in those afflictions that God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But friends, what does that even mean? Well, this brings us to chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. Let's read. Paul says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So friends, if we saw in chapter 4, 1 to 6 that the gospel life entails rejection, and two weeks ago in 4, 7 to 18 that it will certainly involve affliction, here we're seeing in 5, 1 to 5 that this gospel life also promises resurrection. It promises resurrection to his people. 
And so as we think about the passage, I want us to think about it sort of in three movements. And we're going to consider first, in verse 1, what awaits us. And then we're going to consider what's before us, verses 2 to 4. And then lastly, what's given us. So what awaits us, what's before us, and then what's given us. That's going to serve as our outline. So first, verse 1, we're going to be thinking about what awaits us, what awaits us. And in the midst of much afflictions and the temptation many of us will have, right, as Christians, as we assume in the midst of affliction that in some way our afflictions and our trials and our troubles mean that we have somewhere along the way fallen out of God's favor. That maybe God has become displeased with us or in some way has even abandoned us as we face trials. And yet Paul has said something quite different, in fact, quite the opposite. He says that our afflictions are in fact often not evidence that God is in any way displeased with us, nor that those afflictions mark the end of us, but actually instead reveal that God is preparing something much greater for us. For, he says, verse 1, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens, So right there, verse 1, I think that's the main idea. Most everything that follows in 2 to 5, that's just going to be support for that assertion he makes there in verse 1. And that tent, Paul references, is in fact our earthly body. And that image shouldn't exactly surprise us because, of course, what's Paul's occupation? Right? Paul's a tent maker. He intimately was accustomed with how temporary, right, how fleeting, how prone to wear and tear and abuse tents are. It's not, a, not an unusual image, therefore, for him to grasp. And the language there in verse 1, though, it also recalls 1 Chronicles 9.23, where, where God's own tabernacle in the wilderness was what? It was a temporary tent before it had a more permanent home in the form of a building, the temple there in Jerusalem. So Paul's saying, by by alluding back to that tabernacle in the wilderness, he's saying that just as that tabernacle was temporary, so our earthly bodies are also temporary. For friends, all of our bodies, they either wear down or they're torn down. And that's the sense behind that word destroyed. It actually speaks to a building being leveled or demolished, something that's being torn down. And Paul understood, as he's talked about as many afflictions as the result of his ministry, he understands that his own ministry and the work of his ministry could result in his own murder, right? His own death. It would be, in that sense, destroyed, torn down. But whether or not it's destroyed or whether or not it just fades due to age, one way or another, friends, all of us die. And there's no escaping that reality. Right? For thousands of years, folks have sought the mythical fountains of youth, right? magical waters that somehow turn back the hands of time. Friends, hot springs is a fine place to visit. But those springs aren't going to magically wash 20 years off your life or rather set you on to eternal life. There are no springs, so to speak, in this life that can accomplish that. You know, as Americans, we spend, it's estimated, roughly $20 billion a year just on skincare products. $20 billion. A recent survey of women revealed that they will spend nearly a quarter of a million dollars on their appearance over their lifetime. 
But despite how much it is, wrinkles still appear. Hair still disappears. Don't look too closely at my head. Skin sags, shoulders slouch, and the body continues its slow march into the ground. As much as we seek to euphemize death, as much as we seek to push death out to the periphery of society, right? there is no escaping death's inevitability. And friends, the Bible's honest about that. Right? Death is mentioned nearly 400 times just in the New Testament alone. It doesn't ignore it. It doesn't sugarcoat it. It certainly doesn't romanticize it or glorify it. The Bible, in fact, laments death. It laments it. You know, our word euthanasia just comes from two Greek words pushed together, right? You meaning well or good and thanatos meaning death. That's where we get this word euthanasia. And our world will celebrate that idea. You know, Roman and Greek philosophers, they reflected on it often. They often didn't celebrate it like we tend to celebrate it. But just to be clear, that very idea of of a good death and, and celebrating a death like that, the Bible actually rejects it. The only good death in the Bible is to die to ourselves, Romans 6, right? To die to sin, to die to the world. That's the kind of good death, if you will, the Bible talks about. There's no sense in the scriptures that death, which we all face, is is to be embraced or, or welcomed stoically, right, with hemlock in hand. Yet nonetheless, the Bible does, it speaks honestly to us about it. I will die. You one day will die. Right, if the Lord tarries, that's just a statistical fact. The mortality rate, right, for humanity remains right at 100% consistently. Right there. Friends, death already has grabbed every one of us by the ankles. And every year its grip strengthens, pushes into that thin bony skin, and it pulls us down into the ground, and there is nothing that we can do about it. It could be cancer. You could die by a kite. I mean, literally someone last year tragically died when a wayward kite struck them in the head. Right? We don't know how our days are going to end, but they will end. And Paul's saying, what's our hope in it? Right? So if, if the Bible's honest about it, if it laments it, it points nonetheless also, as it does so, to this great promise and hope of victory over death. A victory over it. For whether the tent of our body is destroyed or whether it just simply withers and fades over time, Paul says we have a building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal. In the heavens. Oh friends, what a promise, right? We can run right over it. That is a tremendous promise right there in 5.1. Paul moves from this image of a tent And he now moves this image of a building to communicate the difference between that which is impermanent and passing to that which is instead permanent and eternal. And notice, Paul says that's not merely an empty promise. He says that's a very real possession. He says what? We have it. We don't just hope for it. We don't just wish for it. We don't just pray for it. Paul says we have that. We possess it now. 
You know, it reminds us of Jesus' own teaching back in John 14 too. Right? In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. You know, one of the things I love to do is I love to go up to Crystal Bridges. I love to see the architecture. The paintings are great especially in the first half. Not as big a fan of whatever's in the second half. No offense to you who enjoy that. But it's just the way that whole structure, Crystal Bridges, the way it's built into the quarry, the lines, the glass, the concrete, the way it sort of hovers over the water. All right, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. I just like the architecture. You know, every time I go, I walk through the Bachman Wilson house, that Frank Lloyd Wright Usonian home. At least I want to, if family permits. And if you haven't done it, you've got to do it. Get the audio. That makes it all the more worthwhile. Point being, though, if you've been up there, our hands, human hands, can create wonderful things, marvelous things. But Paul says what God is creating is so much better because it's actually not made with human hands. No hand stained by sin. It's made by divine hands. Divine hands have shaped and fashioned it. Friends, the likes of which we have never seen or we could possibly dream. And this house is eternal. Paul says it doesn't fade with time. It doesn't rot or rust. The paint doesn't chip. Right, The concrete doesn't crumble. It's eternal, Paul says, in the heavens. Such are the bodies that God has in store for his children. Not perishable and temporal, he says, but incorruptible bodies, eternal bodies. That's what awaits the Christian. A bodily dwelling, unlike anything you or I could fathom where God himself becomes the master architect and builder, right? where sin cannot stain it, where time will never touch it, where weather will never warp it and nothing will ever diminish it. That's what God has. We can't fathom it. That's what he's establishing and creating. And this is what God has prepared for those who love him. It's what awaits us, Paul says. And it's glorious. But Paul's going to move. He sets that out as a tremendous hope. And now he's going to move. And he's going to leave from the future, so to speak. Pull back. And he's going to pull us back more into the present. And we're going to think secondly about now what's before us. So we thought about a little bit of what awaits us. But now what's before us. And Paul's going to mix his metaphors which in English class is going to get you in trouble, but Paul can do that, right? His privilege, his, his right, his prerogative. And he's going to move from this image of a building, and he's going to shift now to this image of clothing in verses 2 and 3. He says, for in this tent we groan, verse 2, continuing with this building image, longing, and now he flips to this clothing image, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we will not be found naked. So in this tent, in this bodily existence, Paul says, now in the present we groan. And that's very similar to the language that we heard read for us by Emberly early in Romans 8. Romans 8, 23, Paul writes there, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we what? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Do you hear that groaning combined with bodily redemption? So notice Paul's not groaning in hopeless futility. He's not groaning tragically like some mortally wounded soldier left there out to die on some battlefield. That's not the kind of groaning that, that defines Paul here. No, he, he doesn't groan in hopeless futility, but, but he groans with a kind of hopeful expectancy, maybe more like a mother who groans in the pain of childbirth, longing for something that is yet to come. Painful, but hopeful. And Paul's saying he longed for his heavenly dwelling, assuming, he says, that he would not be found naked. Now, what Paul means exactly there by naked is one of the tougher issues to understand in our text. Paul could be speaking there ethically, as in in the same way that Adam's own nakedness back in the garden sort of exposed his own moral guilt and shame. In that same way, perhaps, Paul wanted to be clothed so he wouldn't have his own guilt and shame exposed. So it could be thinking sort of ethically there, or it could be that Paul's speaking differently. He's speaking more materially. He's speaking more physically. So to be naked in this sense would mean that we would be shedding our earthly clothes, as in shedding our earthly bodies, but have not yet received our glorified bodies, right? Our resurrected, our heavenly bodies. And in that sense, Paul's nakedness there would be referring to some kind of an intermediate state. Not purgatory, right? That's not everywhere in Scripture, where we're called to work off our sins to get to heaven. Not that. And not some soul sleep notion where we're unconscious as time passes, suspended somehow. Not that. But this would be more of a conscious, intermediate state where we're with the Lord, but we're with the Lord as in disembodied souls, awaiting the final resurrection, and we're brought together, reunited with new bodies. Maybe he's speaking more physically, materially that way. And it's hard to know because Paul's aim here is not to give us some step-by-step blueprint for what happens after we die. That's not his purpose. But whatever he means, it is clear what Paul longs for. He longs to be further clothed with a resurrected body. So notice here how Paul doesn't simply speak of his great hope as an escape from the body. Right, Heaven is not being delivered from our bodies. Paul places very little value in an immaterial existence, as if we're some disembodied ghosts, as if we're some homeless souls left to wander the universe throughout eternity. That's of no hope or comfort to Paul. Rather, the redemption Paul longs for is not a redemption from the body, but it's actually redemption of the body. So too, friend, the redemption that we long for as Christians ought not to be a redemption from our bodies, but the redemption of our bodies. That's what we long for, which is one of the reasons why Christians have always historically placed a high value on the body. That's why we're called to care for our bodies. And the reality is, as Christians, many of us will fall into sort of one of two ditches as we think about our bodies. We'll either idolize our bodies and we'll spend countless hours and untold sums of money, right, grooming them, sculpting them, shaking them, shaping, maybe we, we may shake them too, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for you. You have your own exercises. Seek to shape them, perfect them, right, so that's one extreme, the extreme to idolize them. 
Or we go to the other extreme, right? We, we disregard our bodies. Maybe even go so far as to abuse them, to harm them, to mutilate them. When God would rather call us, right, what? To receive them and steward them as his gifts to us. So I think a good question to ask yourself is are you more prone to idolize your body, attaching too much value to it, or perhaps are you more prone to disregard and abuse your body, maybe attaching too little value to it? And maybe you're caught and you just flip between those extremes, going from one to the other. While Paul says we're not to abuse it, we're not to mistreat it, right? we're not to injure it, we're not even to seek to escape our bodies. At the same time, we don't want to invest all our hopes in these bodies. And that's a concern, this concern for the body is one of the reasons why Christians have historically, it's why we've, we've buried our dead and not burned them as many ancient cultures would have. So the culture surrounding the, the Jews, the culture surrounding early Christians would often burn their bodies, but out of a concern and a reverence for these bodies as gifts. And the fact that one day we would receive resurrected bodies, Christians have historically buried bodies. It's not to say that's a matter of like clear doctrinal, you must do this. I'm just saying it's one of the implications of Christians' concern for respect of the body. You know, ancient writers would describe in Paul's day the body as a kind of clothing and thus death becomes a kind of undressing. And so the Roman philosopher Seneca, he would complain. He would complain of this clogging burden of a body to which nature has fettered me. You hear in that the body is a kind of prison, right? It's, it's fettered us in the sense that it's, it's shackled us. It holds us in chains. And we must be released from the body. But here's the thing, and I want you to listen closely. Death in the Bible is never pictured as liberation. Nor is death in the Bible ever the solution. Actually, the solution to our problems is not to be found in death. Death in the Bible itself is the problem, which is why what we need is not liberation in the form of our physical death. We need the resurrection, a resurrection from death. So notice verse 4, Paul's groaning. His burden is not, he says, that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So notice Paul's desire is not that we would be rid of this body, but that he would receive a heavenly body. Paul doesn't seek the release of his own bodily existence, but he wants to see the transformation of that existence. So that expression, further clothed, in verse 4. It's the same word just for put on back in verse 2 as I'm putting on clothing. And it speaks to putting on a garment. And it speaks put on a garment almost like a jacket, some kind of a coat, some outer garment that you place over your existing clothes. And so the image seems to be a little less, or maybe I should say the image is not so much that in death we shed this old body and like toss it in the trash. Maybe like one would an old undershirt, you know, that undershirt that's old and it's, it's, na it's nasty, it's discolored. You know what those shirts are like. You know, finally, one of your, spou your spouse or my wife, in my case, she's like, Brad, how many more times am I going to wash this thing? Just throw it away, right? Well, the image there is not so much that, that discolored, worn through, toss in the trash kind of item that we shed that, 
Rather, the image is that we don this new clothing that actually works to transform the old. You know, so we're all familiar with superhero films. You know, the Marvel and DC comics. So what we know, Clark Kent, right, Spider-Man. We know Peter Parker and Superman. We know Bruce Wayne and Batman. My kids are laughing at me in the front pew. I'm not sure why. Did I say something wrong? What I say? Who is it? You can correct me later. They're all laughing at me hysterically. I don't actually watch these shows a whole lot. I see them watch them. We should go back to jiggling exercises. At any rate, uh, you know the point I'm trying to make. Whatever confusion I've created in all these films, Tony Stark, right? He's got a suit, doesn't he? Yeah, okay, good. All right. What do they all have, right? That's the common denominator. They've got these suits. They put them on, and they get these superpowers, And Paul's point is not here that in donning sort of this new creation clothing that we get superpowers, that's not what he's focused on, but that God has this supernatural clothing for us, something that's far superior to anything we see in film. And that God himself has tailored that suit. He doesn't just hold it out to us, but he actually dresses us in it. And in doing so, all those old clothes, right, that we have underneath, those worn undershirts and the rest, well, we, we keep those on, and in some ways, as a reflection of those as our old bodies, when we don these new bodies, it transforms the old. All is made new. It's the, kind of what we hear in Philippians 3.21 where God has, in Christ himself, transformed this lowly body that would become like his heavenly body. So at the close of verse 4, right, we read, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So if you've come here as a non-Christian this morning, I'm so grateful you're here. We love to have you here. We hope you've been encouraged. We hope you feel welcomed. I just wonder, what's your hope in the midst of death? What's your hope in the midst of death? Right, you've already noted, tragically, all die. Friend, is death going to have the final word on your own life? Will you die naked, unclothed, without any hope before the judgment seat of God? The great promise that Christ holds out to us is that in him, we in fact can be clothed. We can be clothed with a righteousness that is not ours, but a righteousness that is Christ's. Because what we believe as Christians about the gospel, about the basic good news of why God has made us and why he sent Jesus to save us, is that we have, in fact, not sadly lived the life that God has called us to live. We have not perfectly fulfilled the law, but Jesus has. He has perfectly done that for us. And only Jesus died the death we deserve to die for our sins. And only Jesus rose victorious over death. And he alone conquered death so that all who trust him, they can be clothed in his righteousness. And they can have that before the Father. You know, we said earlier that the mortality rate for all is 100%, which is actually technically not true because there is one who rose. And he's the one who can clothe you. He's the only one before the Father that can make you whole. So if you've come as a non-Christian in the face of death, I hope you see that your only confidence finally is the one who's been raised from the dead. 
the one who conquered death in Jesus Christ. You need to be clothed in his righteousness. And you can do that by repenting of your sins, turning away from them and trusting in this Jesus. And then following him by joining with a body of believers like this. Friends, if you want to talk about that, if any of you want to talk more about that, I'd love to talk with you or talk to the friend that brought you. I'm usually at the back door after the service. Find me. Find anyone who looks like they're happy to talk about Jesus and hear more. All right? You know, but to the Christian, I hope you noticed that word groan. It's twice there in verse 2 and in verse 4. Paul says what he groans for his heavenly body. Christian, just ask yourself, do you ever groan with this kind of hopeful expectancy? Just reflect on your own prayer life. Reflect on how often your prayers actually exhibit this kind of hopeful groaning for what's to come. The expectation of what will come and what you don't presently have. Does that mark your prayer life at all? You know, it's one of the reasons why we seek to sing of heaven. I'm convinced Christians sing too little of heaven. We need our eyes regularly brought out of our own circumstances and lifted on to that which awaits us. And Paul's seeking to do that. I know when I first became a Christian, uh, heaven was actually a bit of a struggle, which may sound odd. But what I mean by that is I heard Christians talk about heaven as if it was a great and a glorious thing. And of course, heaven is a great and glorious thing. That's all true. And yet, I remember as much as I was happy for heaven, in here, I wanted it later. Not sooner, but a little later. I had things in my life that I wanted to accomplish. I had dreams that I wanted to fulfill. And I even remember praying as a new Christian, Lord, I know this isn't quite right. I should long to be with you in heaven. But if you might just wait like 10 years. I mean, literally, it's how I prayed. There are some things I'd like to do, some places I'd like to see, some experiences and joys I'd like to have. Just just. Give it a little bit of time before you come back. Right? I wanted it later and not sooner. I honestly did. I didn't groan for the redemption of my body. Right? After all, at that age, my body was still doing largely fine. All of that reflected how much, though, it reflected how much I actually thought of this life. How little I thought of the next life. It reflected I actually didn't take God at his word. I didn't trust that what was awaiting me was an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, right? I wanted my best life now, so I like strawberry milkshakes, okay? You might like chocolate vanilla. That's your own issue with the Lord. Strawberry's the way to go. And it was like the Lord is handing me in life a huge strawberry milkshake, and I wanted to grab that thing, and I wanted to suck it dry. And then when I'd sucked it down to the dregs, I could toss it, I could be done with it, and then the Lord could take me home to glory. Sadly, that's how I thought of my life. And it reflected that it really wasn't God that I wanted. It wasn't really, right, his kingdom come, his will be done. It was still Brad's kingdom come, Brad's will be done. Again, I knew it was wrong, and I prayed for a change of heart. You know, much of God's kind purposes and plans, but often his very dark providences, are to, in fact, wean us off this world. Because we'll come to find, if you live long enough, that 
all of life's purported glories, well, they're not, in fact, as great as they're often advertised. The strawberries of life aren't, in fact, that sweet. The milk seems to sour pretty quickly in the mouth. And we come to understand that we're actually not quite as impressive as we might think. And we actually sin worse than we might imagine. And others sin against us in ways we didn't imagine. And God, we come to find, is the only one who's faithful through it all. And the more we come to understand ourselves, and the more we come face to face with all the broken promises of this fallen and sinful world, the more glorious this God, in fact, becomes to us. The more precious his grace, the the sweeter his promises. And one way or another, we will learn what it means to long for heaven. I wanted it later, not sooner. Paul had been taught what it meant to long for it sooner and not later. He knew that striving after this life was like reaching into a trash bin You know, down there at Shakes on College, behind Shakes, reaching into a trash bin, rummaging through that trash bin, swatting away the the bees and the flies that are are about in order to pull out that two-day-old, sucked-over warm milkshake. It's a good image, isn't it? Styrofoam cup, sticky and nasty, straw-crusted with someone else's saliva, Inside's nothing but old curdled milk. And so many of us in this life, what do we do? We like take our old stained shirts and we try to wipe that cup off and wipe that straw off and we suck whatever's left, whatever sour, warm, dry sips are left and we try to suck it clean and that's where we expect to find out of life. And that's what we live for in this world. And we don't understand or perhaps we just refuse to believe And in fact, God's provision. And even more, God's very presence with us. Well, that swallows, even devours everything that this life has to offer. Paul knew what it was like to groan and to long for that life. That day when when death itself is swallowed up by life. It's almost the image, I love spring, right? You've got all the dead leaves and And, well, really all you have left at that point is just barren brown trees. And yet, in the course of just a short period of time, it's as if life engulfs the trees and swallows up death. That's the image here. Paul knew it was like to groan for that life. Friend, do you know what that's like? And if not, what might that say about you? But how do we really know, after all, that this heavenly dwelling is what awaits us? Right? We're told it's glorious, that we're to grasp for it, even groan and long after it. But how do we know this this future can be ours? Friends, that brings us to our third and final point. We thought about what awaits us, what's before us. Now, thirdly, what's given us? Thirdly, what's given us? Paul opened in 5.1 with, we know. So Paul, again, is not simply saying that this is a wish, a hope, some pie-in-the-sky pipe dream. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying we can bank of it, we know of it, we can be sure of it. How? Verse 5, because he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. 
So notice how God brackets the section of our text. He opens referring to this building that God has for us, and then he returns at the close of the text to remind us that it's God who's prepared it for us. Right? All this is about what God is doing. Right? God has prepared us. God has created us. He has redeemed and saved us in order to clothe us, to welcome us, to warmly receive us. That's what God is about. Friends, that's who God is. That's how he behaves towards his children. That's what he's like. You know, it can be hard to trust the goodness of God in this life. And when we look at specific segments of our lives, and especially when we we focus on specific events, it can be easy to become frustrated, to doubt, discouragement, disillusionment, those things can set in. But friends, just as children, whether they're 3, 5, or 15, just as they often struggle how to see how their parents and the hardships their parents may put on them are actually meant there to grow them and to train them and prepare them for adulthood, it's no different with us and our own father. You know, if we just cut one clip out of our life and we focus on that, and if we, we just replay that clip over and over, we will be prone to doubt the goodness of God. But when we step back, And we consider all that God is doing and all that he's prepared for us, right? That Jesus was not just crucified for us, but raised for us and has indeed gone ahead of us. And this Jesus even now waits for us, right? We begin to see life in a very different perspective. And as proof God, he says, gives us the spirit as a guarantee, verse 5. You know, that's the very same language used back in chapter 1, verse 22. The Holy Spirit as a guarantee. That word guarantee speaks to a pledge, a deposit, a kind of down payment. It was often used of a wedding ring, right? Or rather an engagement ring, I should say. Used of an engagement ring that would be the pledge of a wedding to come. So the Holy Spirit, which God has poured out into our hearts, serves as that pledge and promise that he will fulfill all that he has spoken. Christian, do you see the kindness of God even in that? You realize God could just say, trust me. Just trust me. He's always trustworthy, right? That should be enough. For is there a single promise God has not kept? Is there a single word of his that remains unfulfilled? Is there any portion of his heart, just as we thought last week, that is cold or callous toward his children? Not at all. He could just say, trust us. But he hasn't just done that. He's given us something, his spirit as a guarantee, as a promise, as a pledge. So that more than the certainty of our own deaths, we can be certain of the promise of this life that's held out to us. So circle back. Think about that question again. What are you looking forward to? What are you looking forward to this morning? You know, it's not wrong to look forward to graduation or summer vacation. It's not wrong to look forward to lazy days on a beach or floats down a river. Well, I'm going to leave out the Backstreet Boys. But friend, do you long for anything more than that? Or does your longing just stop there? Are you still banking on the broken promises that some way and in some fashion this world is going to deliver for you? That it will meet you and it will fulfill you? We were made for so much 
more. So does your heart yearn and long for something? Our hopes reveal not only the passions of our own hearts, but our hopes finally reveal something of the destination of our own souls. Friends, what do your hopes reveal then about where your eternal life is headed? Let's pray.